Well, good morning, family. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. We have the blessed privilege of opening up the inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God. So let's ask His blessing as we come to it this morning. Father, we are so, so blessed to be together, to have the opportunity to fellowship with one another, to... Uh, together to lift our voices in praise to You, to share together now as we look into Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes, as it were, the eyes to our hearts, our minds, our souls, that we might see, our spiritual ears, that we might listen, we might hear what You have for us this morning. We pray You would work through Your Word and that You would help us to, as we look and as we listen, that we would see You in Your Word and through Your Word this morning. We ask that You would use Your Word to draw us near. Hebrews says that Your Word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword that it can go in and do surgery in our hearts, reshape us, remake us. Lord, we ask that You would do that through Your Word this morning so that we don't just hear it, but that we are changed. So, may You draw us near this morning. May You change us. May then You use Your Word to send us out to live for Jesus. So we ask Your blessing on our time because we are a needy people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love stories of people thrust from obscurity to stardom. For example, a few years ago, there was the story most of us are acquainted with of a guy named Kurt Warner who was went from bagging groceries at High V to ending up as the Rams quarterback and becoming the superstar of the Super Bowl. Uh, we remember that well. That thought of moving from obscurity to stardom is what's behind, it's the premise of the, of the show American Idol. And America's got talent and a bunch of those other kind of spin-offs and similar programs that are saying, you know, among us there lurk people with great abilities and great talents that are just waiting to be discovered. So they go out and hold open auditions and people go and hope that they'll go and be discovered. And sure enough, what's come out of it is a bunch of people who become famous. It's the stuff of dreams, fantasies, fairy tales like Cinderella. The little poor girl who becomes the princess. That's all really intriguing. The reverse of that, not necessarily so much. Moving from stardom and celebrity and greatness to obscurity. That may intrigue us to read about somebody else, but it doesn't intrigue us. Oh, that's what I'd really like to do. <laughs> I'd like to move from greatness to nothingness. That, well, we're going to see some of both of those here today in Daniel chapter 5. 
As we continue our look into the life of Daniel, we will once again, we're, we're coming to a marvelous story. You know, we said when we started this, and maybe you weren't here when we started, but the book of Daniel is, is 12 chapters long. Half of it, six chapters, are really story. Six chapters are mostly prophecy. Half prophecy, half story. This series, we've been focusing on the story parts of the book. Not because the prophecy isn't valuable, not because it's not intriguing, not because it's not interesting or important, because it is all of those. Rather, we've chosen this because the prophecy is what, for many of us, we tend to focus on in Daniel. The stories kind of get relegated off into Sunday school and kids. And uh, there's an awful lot of rich stuff here in Daniel in the story. As we look at his life, again, big lessons of the book. There is one God. He is sovereign. He is in control of all the affairs of men. And there's lessons about how for, how for you and me, how we are to live godly lives in a godless place. As Daniel, a godly young man, is thrust into, uh, into captivity into Babylon, the hotbed of godlessness, or at least of idolatry of his day. So with that in mind, we come to Daniel 5. Follow along as we begin. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. I'm going to stop and take a few minutes because, first of all, we have to talk about King Belshazzar. Who in the world is King Belshazzar? So far in this book, the main characters have been Daniel, his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael disappeared off the pages a couple of chapters ago. Last week, last chapter, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was on center stage. And now he is off the page. We have this guy here, King Belshazzar. Who is this? Well, for many years, no one knew. The scholars and the critics and the skeptics would scoff at the book of Daniel and they say that this book was really not written by Daniel, not at the time it wrote, it says it was written, and this is proof. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after 43 years on the throne then came uh, a succession of three of his descendants on the throne, two of them having been assassinated. And then six years after Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Nabonidus takes the throne in Babylon. Nabonidus sits on the throne as king for 17 years. And then uh, he is on the throne as the Medes and the Persians take over and conquer Babylon. There is no Belshazzar and there's no place in the chronology for him proof this book wasn't written by Daniel or he would have known better. Then, in the middle of the 1800s, archaeologists found the Nabonidus Cylinder. There, inscriptions from Nabonidus, the king of Babylon, who talks about his son, 
Belshazzar. Archaeologists have since learned that indeed Nabonidus was king for 17 years, but for 10 of those 17 years, he was out of Babylon. He was on, he was on building trips, uh, on, working on building projects. He was uh, traveling, playing golf. I don't know what he was doing. But he wasn't there in Babylon. And he put his son, Belshazzar, as co-king, co-regent on the throne in all that time he was gone. <laughs> and so, this is one more of many, many examples where the critics and the scoffers have, have made fun of the Scriptures only to have archaeology prove them wrong and the Scriptures right. And what they actually pointed to as the flaw and the problem of Scripture actually comes back to support it all the more because Daniel, you see here, knew the technical details of what was going on in the kingdom that for the most part had been lost to history. And someone writing in the 2nd century B.C. as they would say that it was, they wouldn't have known that information. But Daniel, writing back in the 6th century B.C., absolutely knew the facts. A little more backstory on chapter 5. A few years after Nebuchadnezzar died, and while all the turmoil is going on among who's going to succeed him, over to the east and to the south in Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire begins to grow. Cyrus begins to emerge in power. And over the next decade or so, he, he begins to expand and he conquers uh, lands up to the north of the Babylonian Empire. And then uh, a few years... Well... Actually, it's earlier in the same year that chapter 5 begins. 539 B.C. is the year here in chapter 5. Earlier in the year 539, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire begins to march down towards the city of Babylon. Having already conquered now some of the Babylonian Empire, King Nabonidus, king of Babylon, hurries back to Babylon and takes his army out to go and meet King Cyrus to try to stop their advance. Well, he's a failure. The Babylonian army gets trounced. Nabonidus gets captured. And that's the opening here of chapter 5. The Medo-Persian army then proceeds down to Babylon, surrounds the city, and begins a siege. It's been going on a little while as this chapter opens. Belshazzar, on the throne there in Babylon, is in a not really great spot, but on the other hand, it wasn't a bad thing. And what he wants everybody to know, he wants everybody in, that's in Babylon to understand that, yes, we're surrounded. Yes, Dad got beat. Yeah, 
We've lost most of the empire, but we're here, we're in Babylon, and we're good. Babylon can't be taken. The ancient historian Herodotus tells us that the city of Babylon was 14 miles square, 14 square miles, with double walls around the city. The walls, he says, were 350 feet tall. And there was, they were 85 feet thick. Four chariots could run side by side along the top of the walls. There was a moat that between the inner and outer walls, the Euphrates River ran between the, uh, through the city. And so there was plenty of fresh water coming into the city. There were big brass gates that they could close over the, over the rivers to prevent boats and others from, from coming in, enemies from coming in that way. They, the city was so large, they had areas inside the walls to farm and to grow food. And they had, they boasted they had 20 years worth of, of provisions stored up. So let the Medes and Persians come and hang out. They can camp out around our city all they want. We're good. Now the problem, of course, for the politician, for the king, is we've got to keep morale up in the city. We've got, we have to let people understand we're good. And so, Belshazzar declares a holiday, a festival. He throws a party, it says here, for a thousand of his nobles, his officials, his leaders. Not only for them, but there's wives and concubines, all the women. There's probably several thousand folks there. But it's not just a party in there. Herodotus lets us know it's a party outside. The whole city is having a fiesta. Now, don't just think they're having a banquet. He, Belshazzar intends this to be a day and night of drunkenness, revelry, or as Don said earlier about Corinth, debauchery. Debauchery wasn't invented when somebody came up with spring break. That's just a new manifestation of what has been something all through history at times. It was in Corinth and it was here in Babylon. A big drunken orgy was the intention. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote in, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote and then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees got to knocking. 
says when he tasted the wine, the text seems to imply that Belshazzar is acting a bit under the influence. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done this. May I say that it's not an implicit, but I'll just add a little kind of hidden warning in there that Scripture says very plainly other places. Warning, alcohol easily leads to bad judgments. Be warned. So a buzzed Belshazzar (laughs) thinks it's going to be a really good idea to get these things from the temple. It's going to be a real morale booster for the people that we go back and reminisce and we rehearse our great victories as a nation when we defeated other nations and gods and let's get the things, the temple treasures out and we're going to remember how we whooped up on the God of the Hebrews. His Nebuchadnezzar knew that wasn't a good idea. And Belshazzar somehow in his not thinking clearly (laughs) does this. In the midst of their drunken praise of the idols, a hand appears, a disembodied hand, just a hand. Think, you know, Adam's family, the thing, you know, <laughs> appears and begins to scratch into the plaster a, a message. It says that it, you're in a banquet hall and it's probably already into the early evening, the, the nighttime, it's dark. And it says it's in front of the lampstand. It's, it's in front of the, where the big torches are so it can be plainly seen. Somebody saw it first. And I'm sure as people began to notice it, they thought, this is a cool trick! This is awesome! Look at that! Till people begin to realize it's not a trick. Not some magician's little parlor thing. This is a hand miraculously by itself writing a message. Wonder moves to terror. Fear. The crowd gets sober. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. He calls loudly. Literally, he's screaming, Bring in the wise men! He's panicked. They come, but once again, third time in this book, the wise men come in and fail to deliver at a crucial time. They can't interpret it and it says here that they can't read it either. People have wondered, why can't they read it? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There might be several reasons. I'll just give a couple. But one could be this. Aramaic, when it is written, ancient Aramaic, like ancient Hebrew, omits the vowels. And so what you have are essentially just consonants. The reader has to supply the vowels. 
And so it would read something like this using English letters. When Daniel later reads it, he reads, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, or Uparson, which is and Parson. Or actually, since Aramaic, like ancient Hebrew, reads, reads right to left. So it would be more like this. But even I can't read that. <laughs> you could put a lot of different words and different things together. You could create several different sentences or thoughts or ideas. Which one is it? Which one's right? And what does it then mean? They struggle with that. That might have been the problem. Perhaps it was written in a different language that the wise men did not know. Maybe it was even written in Hebrew. We don't know. For whatever reason, they can't read it or interpret it. And that just causes Belshazzar to panic all the more. Verse 10, The queen... Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. The queen comes in, probably referring to Belshazzar's mother, not his wife, who the text says his wives were already in the room. Probably his mother who knew what kind of party this was going to be and she didn't want to be there. Um, this mother is either the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar who married King Nabonidus or this could be a widow of King Nebuchadnezzar who married King Nabonidus. Either way, she comes in and mom comes to the rescue of Belshazzar, says, here's a suggestion, a little wisdom for you. Get Daniel. Get Daniel. Three observations as we look at Daniel's character in this text. It'll help us as we, as we continue to look and wonder, how are we to live as godly people in an ungodly place? The queen comes in and gives quite a recommendation to Belshazzar about Daniel. Daniel, we, look, we see from her, has a godly reputation. She says, this Daniel has the Spirit of the holy gods in him. That was the same phrase that Nebuchadnezzar used of Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, as we mentioned last week. I think he became a believer. But it's the way he talked of Daniel and so is she. What the, what's recognizing is this guy has a connection with God. And therefore, he has, she says, a superior understanding and wisdom. And therefore, she says, he has an amazing ability to solve riddles and problems. Daniel served 43 years under King Nebuchadnezzar. Forty of those years as the number two man in the kingdom of Babylon. It was no secret Daniel was a bold and devoted follower of God. 
Everybody knew it. He didn't hide that. And also everybody knew this was a man of character. He was a man of a godly and a good reputation. Secondly, I notice that Daniel in this was persistently faithful. He had godly character over the long haul. Daniel is now in his early to mid-80s. After 43 years under Nebuchadnezzar, 43 years in the public eye then, it's now been 23 years and five kings after that. And apparently Daniel has spent much of these last years, maybe all of these last 23 years, on the proverbial shelf. Relegated to the position of the has-beens of the wise men. He's the old guy. We don't pay any attention to him anymore. And he's apparently, Belshazzar really doesn't even know much about him. He's perhaps retired from the job, but he's not retired from being a godly man. If you'll notice in verse 11 what the queen said, she said, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods, or actually it could be God in him. She's kept up with Daniel. She knows where he is. She knows that the Daniel who is there now is the same Daniel who used to be there then. And I'm not talking about the same guy. I'm talking about the same guy. He's the same character. The same man of integrity. The same man of God. He's still the same man. Young or old, in the spotlight or out of the spotlight, in the public eye or in his private home, in his private life, Daniel was the same man everywhere. What you saw was what you got. He was consistently faithful, persistently faithful. All 66 years that he's on the page here in this book, all 66 years in Babylon, he's been a faithful man. Daniel faithfully served God and lived for God. Living as a godly man wasn't something he did, it was who he was. You notice, Daniel doesn't need to take a few days to get prayed up, to get connected to God again, before going and dealing with this situation. He never changed. It's who he was. When the, when the king sent and said, I need you, Daniel didn't have to try to resurrect some connection with God. As we'll find next week, he's in the habit every day. Every day he spends faithful time in prayer. He served faithfully and consistently over the long haul. This week, you're probably aware, Billy Graham passed away. Undoubtedly, he is the most well-known name of modern evangelical Christianity. Far and above, I think, anyone who comes second. Remarkable in both Billy Graham's life, and I have noticed in the last few days in his death, very remarkable 
is the good and godly reputation that he had not only among Christians, not only among believers, but among unbelievers. You read all the comments out there, scores of unbelieving folks speak well of this man. I believe Daniel had that kind of reputation in his day. Even in pagan Babylon. And I think in both cases, it was due to their examples of a consistent godly character. Verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not. They could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be called the third ruler in the kingdom. The king offers Daniel honor, riches, authority, and power, the highest place in the kingdom under Babylon himself, that third place. Notice Daniel's answer, verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. Now, it's easy to read that and think, man, that's kind of rude. It's kind of snarky. Hey, you can just keep your gifts and stuff. I really don't want them. <laughs> See, it's not that Daniel is saying, you know what? This whole third place in the kingdom thing ain't for me. I've already been number two. It's not that. He's not snarky like that. Nor is he saying... You know what? I'm 85 years old. I could care less about being famous or rich. I've been all of that. Not saying that. Nor I don't think is he saying, read that little line up there. You know what? Tomorrow, all of that's going to be worth nothing. I don't think that's his point either. I think his point is this. Daniel has never been impressed with money or prestige, or power. Daniel's focus, his priority, has always been to serve God, not to get personal gain, not to achieve selfish ambition. Daniel has never cared about any of that. Daniel served God, not himself. What he's really saying to Belshazzar is this, Belshazzar, keep your stuff. I'm going to tell you the truth. You can trust my message because I'm not doing this to get your prizes. I'm just going to level with you and tell you the truth. How we need folks will speak the truth for no other reason than that the truth needs to be spoken. Verse 18. O King, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that He gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before Him. Whom He would, He killed. 
And whom He would, He kept alive. Whom He would, He raised up. And whom He would, He humbled. But when His heart was lifted up, and His Spirit hardened, so that He dealt proudly, He was brought down from His kingly throne. And His glory was taken from Him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and His mind was made like that of a beast, and His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and His body was made wet with the dew of heaven until He knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. And you, Belshazzar... Well, I'm going to stop there for just a second. Before Daniel reads the message... He tells Belshazzar what it means. He preaches a little sermon. Daniel hasn't been a preacher so far, but he takes up the the job for once. Three big points to his message. He says, and these are going to sound familiar if you've been around for the series, he says there's one true God. The Most High, he says, verse 18, there is the Most High God. He's the one true God. Secondly, this God alone is sovereign. He is in charge. Verse 18, he says, this God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingship and greatness. Verse 19, because of the greatness that he, God, gave to him, Belshazzar. Verse 20, he says of Nebuchadnezzar, he was brought down. Brought down by whom? By God. He was humbled by God. Verse 21, until Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of men and sets over it whom He will. God alone is sovereign. The third point in this is that we must respond rightly to Him. He tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which was last chapter last week. If you weren't here, get a CD, go online, listen. It's a great story. You need it. But here's His Next big point. There's one true God. God alone is sovereign and we must respond rightly to Him. Nebuchadnezzar is the example. Hebrews 11 describes what that looks like. It says this, here's the correct response to God. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What's the right response to God? Faith. And the verse there in Hebrews defines what, it, what faith is. Faith is to believe God. And then, because you believe God, faith is to follow Him. It is to understand that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him, those who follow Him. It is to stake your life, your future, your hopes, your dreams, everything on the fact that following God is worth it. I believe God, therefore I follow Him. That's the response of faith. And the example is Nebuchadnezzar. He says, your father Nebuchadnezzar, when he, he at first was rebelling against God, he was a proud man, but God humbled him. And when Nebuchadnezzar turned to God, honored Him as God, followed Him as God, Nebuchadnezzar was restored. His kingdom was restored. Nebuchadnezzar was a rebel who repented. 
But you, Belshazzar, you knew Nebuchadnezzar's whole story. But you ignored the lesson. Instead of humbling yourself before God, you exalted yourself over God. You didn't just ignore Him. You mocked Him. As you praised these other gods, the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone, He says, really, you, you've got the, your whole perspective is upside down. Don't you realize the insanity of this? These gods of gold and silver and bronze, they, they can't see. They can't hear. They can't talk. They can't understand. They're metal and stone and wood. And yet you worship these gods. You praise them and exalt them. But the Most High God, who can see and hear and understand, and in whose hand He holds your very breath. He's the Creator of all. He's, he's the One who's sovereign over all. He can even write in a wall if He wants. This God you dishonor. He's the One who wrote the message. Now, let's read it. I have a feeling Belshazzar looked really frightened at that moment. This is the writing that was inscribed. Verse 25, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene means to number. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, which means to weigh. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, which is a singular Parson, by the way. Paris. Your kingdom is divided. It means to divide. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with, a, with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The message numbered numbered, weighed, and divided. Your kingdom is over. You're done. Belshazzar heard all this. He saw all this. <laughs> As it were, the smoke alarms were going off and you could smell the smoke. And he apparently did absolutely nothing about it. Other than he honored his public Commitment to give Daniel the gold chains and the purple robe and the de decree that he's number three in the kingdom. But other than that, it appears that the next thing that happened is the band kicked up again and the party went back to full swing. Unknown to everyone at the banquet, unknown to the folks in Babylon, outside the city walls of Babylon, the Medes and Persians had been very busy. For some time, out of sight, where the, the uh, historian Herodotus tells us that out from beyond where you could see from Babylon, Cyrus had his armies dig a canal. A canal that went a good ways around Babylon. And then on this very night, 
they opened the canal to the Euphrates River and diverted the Euphrates River around Babylon. While that was being done, Cyrus got his army and put half of it at the, where the, at the north where the river flowed into, ba- into Babylon and half at the south where it flowed out. And when the waters got down low enough that they could go into the water and go under the gates, the army did. Inside the city, everybody was drunk and carousing and nobody was even watching because they thought they were secure. And in a very short time and with very little fight, the Medo-Persians took the whole city. And as it says here, Belshazzar was killed. October 11 and 12, the night where the 11th became the 12th, 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire was over like that. That night in Babylon is in many ways a picture of our world yet today. Its days are numbered. Judgment is coming. The Bible is clear. One day, this world will be judged. It could happen in our lifetime, but even if it doesn't, our personal days are numbered. The older we get, the more we understand that. Even if we live to be 80 or 90 years old, our days are numbered and they will run out and our life will end. And it's very short. Right? Anybody over 60 disagree with that? The Bible is clear. Time is short, and yet still most of the world is occupied with a party. Or they're fretting over this problem and that situation. Or they're trying to get a new this or a flashier that. Or they are working to achieve some goal or working to get that promotion or they're chasing popularity or chasing love or chasing fill in the blank. (laughs) See, it's like the proverbial folks who are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic as it's going down. The world is consumed with lost causes and missing the only thing that really, truly matters. What do you do when you've been measured, weighed, found wanting, and the judgment's coming? 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says this, The world with its is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What do you do? What are we to do? It's what Daniel said. It's what I read earlier from Hebrews 11. We are to respond to God in faith. To believe and trust in Jesus and Because we believe Him, we follow Him. If we truly do that, it changes everything. It gives us a new perspective on life. We will no longer live in this world as part of this world, but we'll live like a Daniel living in a Babylon who chose to live in that ungodly place as a godly man. To live as a light in a dark place. 
to live boldly with godly character, to live persistently faithful, and to live to serve God rather than serving Himself. Let's pray. Father, this is powerful stuff. When we really think about it, it rocks our world. Most of us here in this room would say we are trusting Jesus. There may be someone here today who never heard that before. Maybe they need to understand that there's a God who loves them, but there is judgment coming. You gave Your Son, You gave Jesus to pay for our sin. You call for us to trust in Him. And then there's forgiveness and eternal life. But there are many of us here in this room who name the name of Jesus and yet we tend to live in this world like part of the world because we're living with the wrong perspective. And it's as foolish as Belshazzar. May we look at this world and this life through the lens of Your truth, through the lens of Your Scripture and realize it it changes everything. We don't live for ourselves, we live for You. We live faithful and we live boldly for You because we believe that You are God and You are the rewarder of those who diligently seek You. Father, I pray that that would be true of the folks in this church because this world is in desperate need of a bunch of Daniels. Folks who would live that type of a life of a godly reputation that is consistently faithful so they can see who You are by looking at us. So God, make this true in us for Your glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us. So we ask in Jesus' name.